Well, good evening. It's good to see everybody back here. What a wonderful day to worship the Lord morning and evening. What a privilege that we have to gather as God's people in the morning and in the evening. Amen? Yeah, it's great. We're not used to this in California. There's like one church left. It's pastored by a guy named John MacArthur that does this out there. And so it's such a blessing to be able to do this twice a day and just be spent in this way and to unpack God's word this way. I pray it blesses you. A couple of things before we get started. We're back into our study of theology proper. And, you know, when I got through the last lesson, the first lesson in this series, I kicked myself the next morning because I could sense, even with the glare up here, some of the glazed over looks that I saw out there as I was racing through a bunch of slides with no visual outlines for you guys to work through. So I was already convicted about that. And then a brother in the church gave me the idea, and he set this into motion, that I really ought to provide you with some notes so you can have a a better learning experience as we learn about our great God. So if you came in, you should have received two sheets, one that's already completed, that's from the last lesson, and one with some blanks, which is for tonight's lesson. I'm going to do this kind of weird thing right now where I ask you, if you have not received either of these two sheets, go ahead and put your hand up. There's no shame. We can put our hands up in this church. And I'm going to have the ushers come down and give you... You know what I meant. (laughs) Have the ushers give you a worksheet if you missed that on the way in. That'll, I think, just make for a more edifying, enriching, and then a learning experience that will transcend tonight, where you're going to be able to keep these. We've even hole-punched them so we can bind these. Like I've said in the very beginning, I like to teach through a category of systematics each summer. So doing the math here, if we have 10 of these this summer and 10 over the next nine summers, we'll have 100 pages full of systematic theology, which might be when we need to write an Indian Hills Community Church systematic theology for the world to see. Anyway, with that, let's get going. We've made it through session one of Theology Proper. That's the lesson I taught a couple Sundays ago, and our topic there was the revelation of God. In tonight's lesson, we're going to work through three additional topics, and those are the three main blanks, the main headings that you see on page one and two of your blank worksheet. We're going to talk about the existence of God, we're going to talk about the knowability of God, and we're going to talk about the incomprehensibility of God. Major topics to cover in 45 minutes. Pray for me, please, because these are really impossible topics, of course, to plumb the depths of everything about God, his existence, his knowability, and his incomprehensibility. I hope you can appreciate that one mortal man speaking to a room of mere mortals in the room here tonight. We have quite the tall task ahead of us. But here's the opening question for tonight. Can you think of a question that's been asked more frequently over the millennia, over the centuries, whether it be by professional philosophers, whether it be by theologians, by people in coffee shops or college quads or kitchen tables or water coolers or social media, then the chief question, the ultimate question, the question of questions, does God exist? I can't think of a more frequently asked question. Whether it's phrased that way, does God exist, or in one of these other ways, Is there a God? Are we alone? Is this all there is to this life? 
The reality is there has not been a more frequently asked question in the history of mankind than some formulation of this question. Does God exist? Now, the question has not only been frequently asked, it is the most central and basic and fundamental and ultimately important question that a person could ask. And why? Well, if God exists, it means we have someone to answer to. If God exists, it means that we aren't just a random collection of molecules with no origins or direction or purpose. If God exists, we need to recognize that we are intentionally designed creatures who will one day give an account to the one who created us and give an account for the lives he gave us and for how we stewarded all he gave us in the world that he placed us in. In other words, the question, does God exist, is massively important and is loaded with massively important implications. Well, over the course of the centuries, a series of philosophical arguments, what are also known as natural proofs, have been offered to build the case for the existence of God. We're going to go through four of these natural proofs this evening. More than these four have been offered, by the way, over the course of church history, but we're going to zero in on these four as representative of the types of arguments that have been offered to prove the existence of God. As you're going to hear me, though, say over and over in tonight's message, while there are useful elements to each of these arguments, ultimately there's a better argument, a fifth argument, the argument from Scripture itself for the existence of God. But to make sure that we are being and becoming well-rounded students of theology, we need to go through each of these major four philosophical arguments which have been offered up over the centuries to prove the existence of God. So these are those four philosophical arguments. They're up here on your screen. You can jot these down, actually, in sections A through D on page one of your worksheet while this is up here. We have the cosmological argument. We have the teleological argument. We have the moral argument. And we have the ontological argument. Don't worry. If I'm going too fast, we're going to hit each one of these in detail in just a little bit. The cosmological, teleological, moral, and ontological. We're going to start with the cosmological argument. The term cosmological comes from the Greek word kosmon or kosmos, which means world. And according to this argument, there is no such thing in this world as chance. Uh, rather, everything has a cause. Proponents of the cosmological argument would say that when we look at the world around us, and how everything came to be, we need to think less in terms of coin tosses, that would be chance, and instead look at things in terms of dominoes falling, which would be causation. According to this position, in this finite world in which we live, there cannot be an infinite sequence of causations or causes. Rather, at the beginning, there, there must be at the very beginning of all things, an original, uncaused cause. Something that got everything into motion. First, we had Aristotle promoting this argument. Uh, this is the original, uncaused cause argument comes from, from Aristotle, what he called the, the first mover, or the unmoved mover. In book 12 of his Metaphysics, Aristotle said this, There is that which, as first of all things, moves all things. The first mover must be in itself 
unmovable. Now, while Aristotle's unmoved mover theory did not ultimately get him to the God of the Bible, his idea is very much consistent with what the Bible reveals about God, in fact, being the first mover, in that he is the creator, creating everything ex nihilo, out of nothing. That's what we see in Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So we could say fairly that Aristotle was onto something. He just wasn't, it didn't lead him to the God of the Bible. He didn't receive the type of revelation that was already there in the scriptures that testified to what he was chasing after. Next, we have Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas, a medieval Catholic theologian. He would pick up on Aristotle's logic when he referred to God as the first cause. So Aristotle referred to him as the first mover or the unmoved mover. Aquinas would call God the first cause. Like Aristotle, Aquinas taught that there cannot be an infinite regress of causes. Instead, the buck must stop somewhere. The ball stops bouncing against a wall somewhere. And according to Aquinas, the buck stops with the first cause or the unmoved mover meaning some original necessary being who was sufficient to create all things. And Aquinas took it a step further than Aristotle in saying that the necessary being, that first mover, that unmoved mover, was the God of the Bible. Here's a quote from Aquinas. There must be an absolutely unmoved, separate first mover. This is God. So in other words, Aquinas, I say this carefully, Christianized Aristotle's unmoved mover argument. Why am I being careful by saying that? Well, I alluded to it earlier, but Aquinas was a Roman Catholic. So I wouldn't call him a Christian in any sense of the term. Maybe we could say he deified or or gave a deity to this unmoved mover argument of Aristotle. Now, surely this, this cosmological argument gives us a helpful start to answering the ultimate question about the existence of God. Surely this argument does have a number of benefits, including the simplicity of its logic, including its built-in rejection of evolutionary dogma. For instance, the cosmological argument would reject the evolutionary idea that something can be generated spontaneously out of nothing. This cosmological argument would reject that as being logically impossible. The universe didn't simply start existing. Planet Earth did not simply start existing. The sun and the moon and the stars did not simply start existing. No, no, logically, there must be a first cause, an unmoved mover behind all of it. The cosmological argument then would allow for the existence of an eternal and omnipotent God being that unmoved mover who caused everything to come into existence by an ex nihilo act of creation. That's a lot of words I'm throwing at you to summarize what Genesis 1-1 already says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We could have been out of here five minutes earlier had we just jumped to that conclusion from the text of Scripture itself. You know, I appreciate what Charles Ryrie of Dallas Theological Seminary said about the benefits of the cosmological argument. He said this in his survey of Bible doctrine And I apologize. By the way, these slides, some of them might be a little small for those of you sitting in the back. I wanted to make mention of the fact that every one of these slides will be on the website 
by midweek this week. So when you see like the link to tonight's message, there's an attachment there with the slides that you can pop open and look at if you ever re-listen to this. So Ryrie says, while we have to admit that this cause and effect argument, he's talking about the cosmological argument here, does not in itself prove that the God of the Bible exists, it is fair to insist that the theistic answer is less complex to believe than any other. It takes more faith to believe that evolution or blind intelligence, whatever such a contradictory phrase might mean, could have accounted for the intricate and complex world in which we live than it does to believe that God could. Even more to the point is Robert Jastrow, who wrote in God and the Astronomers, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. A tad snarky, but absolutely true. Because it highlights the ultimate emptiness of the so-called wisdom of this world. Well, as useful as this cosmological argument for the existence of God can be, it does still leave open a variety of questions. And those questions, I would contend, undermine its ability to stand on its own as a sufficient basis to prove the existence of God. Here's one reason why I would say this is not an adequate, in and of itself, argument for the existence of God. First, this argument does not logically compel the conclusion that God if he is the unmoved mover, was not himself caused. There's just not a logical compulsion there to say that if he's the unmoved mover, that means there was nobody who moved him. Second, this argument does not logically compel the conclusion that the first cause is God. Again, that's just summarizing what's already been said. It doesn't necessitate the God of the Bible. Something else, someone else, some other thing or person or Figment could have been the unmoved mover. Third, this argument does not logically compel the conclusion that there was only one first cause. In other words, this argument does not require a monotheistic worldview. What if it was a committee of gods that set things into motion? What if, like a lot of the false religions of the world, there was a, as they would articulate it, there was a father god and a mother god who came together and birthed the world? That would be some religion's version of this unmoved mover argument. The most that can be said from this cosmological line of argumentation is that it establishes that there was some nameless, faceless, unidentifiable, unmoved mover. But it does not necessarily lead one to believe that the unmoved mover is the God of Scripture. Rather, the argument simply proves that there is a first and absolute first cause of everything. Now, Why am I belaboring this? Why these concerns over the overall effectiveness of this argument? One reason would be that there are real-life applications, there are real-life consequences to accepting this view and this view alone as proving the existence of God. In fact, one such person who uses this argument heavily to prove the existence of God is a man you may have heard of, William Lane Craig. He's a philosopher and theologian out at Biola, close to where we're from, He's the founder of something called Reasonable Faith Ministries. It's an apologetics ministry. And Craig is an ardent proponent of what he calls the Kalam cosmological argument. 
kalam is an Arabic word, which means speech or word or utterance. And it has at its root the Islamic way of thinking about our origins as humans. So in the tradition of Aquinas, but borrowing openly Islamic terminology, William Lane Craig has heavily and regularly relied upon the cosmological argument to prove the existence of God. He's done it in his writings. He's done it in his debates with atheists and agnostics. But do you want to know what else William Lane Craig believes? He believes that Adam was not a true historical figure. He believes that the first 11 chapters of Genesis are fictional. In fact, here's a quote from William Lane Craig. That's him pictured in the top left. He says, The primordial history of Genesis 1 through 11 includes elements which, if taken literally, would be so extraordinary as to be clearly false. He continues, Take, for example, magical trees with fruit that, if eaten, would impart the knowledge of good and evil or immortality or the presence of a talking snake that tempts the man and woman to sin. Can you hear the condescending and derisive tone that Craig is using here to condemn, to throw under the bus those of us who take God at his word? William Lane Craig does not hold to the inerrancy and the sufficiency of Scripture. Rather, he holds his doctoral degrees and, frankly, his haughty opinions over Scripture. Deciding for himself, as to use this word here, that the first and the foundational chapters of Genesis are clearly false. If taken seriously, Craig's writings would have the effect of eroding the very foundation of the Christian faith by washing these first 11 inspired chapters of God's word. The point is, you can believe in the cosmological argument, taking it back to our point here, but still have very unorthodox views of the God of the Bible. And there are many other examples of philosophers and apologists and theologians using this cosmological argument to prove the existence of what they've called God, including Islamic theologians, by the way. But the God that their argument points to is not the God of the Bible. And ultimately, believing simply, as Craig does, that there is a God, ultimately does no one any good. James 2.19 says, even the demons believe such a thing. Well, that's the cosmological argument. Friends, I hope you can understand. I am scratching the surface of each one of these in the time that we have tonight. There's so much more that can be said about all these arguments, and there's so many positive and negative things to say, but the main takeaway is these arguments are not enough, and they're not the ultimate way to demonstrate the God of the Bible. The next one is the teleological argument. Now, while the cosmological argument looks at the cause and effect nature of how things work in the world— and the reality that there must be an ultimate cause, that there must be an unmoved mover that stands behind every sequence or event that happens in the world, the teleological argument is an argument for God's existence from design. It looks at the undeniable complexity and order and purpose and intelligence in the universe, seen in things like the human eye and the human ear and the design of a snowflake or the design of a spider web, and the order of various forces in the universe and how somehow everything seems just to hold all together against staggering statistical odds. And then it reasons backwards to posit that this all must have been designed by some ultimate designer. 
the teleological argument for God's existence says that because there is order and design in the universe, there must be a supreme intelligent designer who created it all. You know, in his lectures on systematic theology, Henry Clarence Thiessen pointed this out. He said, order and useful arrangement in a system imply intelligence and purpose in the organizing cause. The universe is characterized by order and useful arrangement. Therefore, the universe has an intelligent and free cause. Thiessen here is giving us a helpful summary and definition of this teleological argument. And not only is this argument compelling, it just makes sense, right? The presence of design and purpose in this world is undeniable. The creation does point to a creator. The design that we see, we can't deny it, does point to a designer. Now, you've probably heard some of the allusions and the illustrations that have been given over the years to demonstrate the sheer statistical improbability that this world and all that's in it came into existence somehow by chance. There's this one commonly cited illustration I jotted down that says chance, like the concept of chance, has less of a chance of creating a complex universe than a million monkeys who randomly pound on a keyboard and reproduce a line from Shakespeare. In other words, it would take more faith to believe that this all happened by accident than it would be to believe that an omnipotent God designed an ordered universe. I'm going to borrow the line from Norm Geisler when he said, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Well, despite its strengths, there are weaknesses also with this teleological argument. Now, weaknesses that show that this cannot be the ultimate argument to prove the existence of God. Here are some of those weaknesses. First, that there may be an original designer does not necessarily logically require that that designer be the creator. One does not compel the other. The designer conceivably could be logically separate from the creator. Perhaps the designer was created by the creator, meaning that the creator was in fact the original designer. Second, how do we know that there was only one designer? Just like with the cosmological argument. Could there not have been a design by committee happening somewhere out there in the cosmos? Couldn't this argument, in other words, leave the door open to adopting a polytheistic worldview where we worship each of the designers? Third, there is evil in this world which appears to have the existence of design to it. You know, think of various strains of disease and illness, just the complex apparent design behind it. Think of the concept of organized crime. The fact that evil exists in this world and that some of that evil does have these elements of what appears to be design demonstrates that design itself could not and does not prove the existence of the God of the Bible. Because if we relied on design exclusively, we'd ultimately have to conclude that God is the designer of evil and then we would no longer have a perfect God. We'd no longer have the perfect God revealed on the pages of Scripture. Fourth, and finally... We know that the teleological argument cannot and does not ultimately point people to the true God because of its various proponents. You know, left to right here, Plato held to some version of the teleological argument. Immanuel Kant held to a version of this argument. Aristotle held to a view of this argument. 
None of these men believed in the Christian God. In more modern terms, you've probably heard of the intelligent design community. They rule out, as we would, that biological complexity is just a matter of sheer chance. So in other words, they hold to a design. They hold to these teleological beliefs. But the intelligent design community is not in and of itself Christian. Sure, there are some in that community who do hold to the Christian truth and have been saved by the grace of God, but there are many who don't profess to be Christians. Their religion is design. So, like with the cosmological argument, there are helpful components to this teleological argument, but the teleological argument does not and cannot stand on its own. It does not adequately land the plane, you could say. That takes us to our third natural proof, our third philosophical argument for the existence of God, the moral argument. And what is the moral argument? Well, because it has to do with man and his makeup and his composition, it's also been called the anthropological argument, anthropos, man. The basics of the moral argument or anthropological argument are as follows. Because there are certain undeniable ethical traits associated with mankind, our conscience, our intelligence, our volition, our will, our sense of justice, our sense of reward and punishment, our fear of death and punishment. Those ethical traits establish that we are moral beings, not mere biological accidents. And the fact that we are moral beings then allows us to reason back to the conclusion that there must be a supreme moral being who created and maintains moral order in the world. I appreciate what Lewis Sperry Schaefer said about this in his systematic theology. He says, There are philosophical and moral features in man's constitution which may be traced back to find their origin in God. A blind force could never produce a man with intellect, sensibility, will, conscience, and inherent belief in a creator. Now, how does the moral argument differ from the previous two arguments for the existence of God? It does so in in this important way. While the cosmological and teleological arguments deal with the complex nature of the universe as a whole, the moral argument gets its name from the complex nature of mankind, of us. And its fundamental premise is that the undeniably moral nature of mankind can only be attributed to the fact that mankind derives from a personal, intelligent, moral being, who Christians would call the God of the Bible. Acts 17.28 says, He is the one in whom we live and move and exist. Now, the moral argument, again, has its appeal. It does contain certain kernels of truth but it has its flaws and its limitations as well. And let's go through some of those. First flaw of the moral argument as a freestanding proof for the existence of God. First is this. It will not always be conceded by those to whom we are trying to prove the existence of God that there is a single and uniform set of morals and virtues in this world. We live, if you haven't noticed, in the what's true for you is not true for me generation. We live in the you-get-to-define-your-own-reality generation. We live in the I-get-to-decide-what-words-with-already-settled-definitions-mean generation. We live in the when-does-life-begin generation. We live in the what-is-a-woman generation. 
We live in the generation which has its feet, as one commentator rightly put it, with its feet firmly planted in midair. Which is to say, we are less and less likely to encounter unbelievers who are going to immediately concede that there is a universal moral code. Now, we as believers, as Christians, know that there is such a moral code. It's the law of God written on the heart of man. That's Romans 2, 14 and 15. For when Gentiles who don't have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternatively accusing or else defending them. But if we are making this case with this unbeliever for the existence of God based on this argument, the moral argument, the point is this. We face a steep uphill battle. Since in their flesh and with their carnal minds, waging war against the truth, as Romans 1.18 says, they are suppressing the truth that they know about God in unrighteousness. Here's a second argument against the exclusivity of the moral argument for God, and it's this. Though we have a conscience, and though it's powerful, it does not necessitate the Christian God. At most, it necessitates the existence of a God. And why? Well, consciences can be skewed and seared. So ultimately, appeal must be made to the gospel of Jesus Christ as revealed in Scripture. More on that in a bit to help the person see their need to not only embrace the existence of a divine moral lawgiver, but to come to faith in the God of the Bible by placing their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Third, and related to the previous point, even unbelievers can affirm the existence of a supreme moral lawgiver without affirming that that lawgiver is the God of the Bible. That was the case with Immanuel Kant, I referenced earlier. He was the Enlightenment-era philosopher who denied both the Trinity and the Incarnation, but yet believed that the moral nature of man pointed to some supreme moral lawgiver. He didn't have an orthodox view of God. He did not believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. His beliefs, like many today, frankly, who are adhering to the the modern-day religion of moral therapeutic deism, did not amount to saving faith. It was faith in a God of his own imagination. So, while we would not deny that the moral compass God's given us does ultimately point to a supreme moral lawgiver, we can affirm that truth, that our moral instincts point to a supreme being, a God. We would not say that the moral argument itself is a sufficient proof to establish the existence of God. And that leads us to our fourth argument, which has been historically offered for the existence of God, and that's called the ontological argument. If you found the first three riveting, man, this fourth one, it's hard to even get it out. The ontological argument gets its name from a a Greek participle, ontos, which derives from a a Greek verb that you've heard, me, I am. Ontos comes from I am, and ontos simply means to exist, to have being. The ontological argument is rooted in the idea of being. Now, this argument has taken on various forms throughout the centuries. Again, I can't give you the whole universe of this argument. I can just give you a nutshell. But the Christian form of this argument can be traced to Anselm of Canterbury, a medieval theologian. 
And track with me if you can. If you can't, I understand. It's hard enough to get it on paper here. Anselm's basic argument is this. Mankind is capable of thinking of something absolutely perfect. We have the ability as humans to think of something absolutely perfect. In his words, something than which nothing greater can be thought. But if that thing does not actually exist, then it's not absolutely perfect. Since existing is better than not existing. Have I lost you already? Thus, says Anselm, if the thing we are imagining does not exist, we can think of something even greater than that, something that actually does exist. And this means an absolutely perfect being must necessarily exist, and that absolutely perfect thing is God. Convinced? It's a bit convoluted, right? But boiling it down, what this argument is saying is that our ability to come up with an idea and conception of something which nothing greater can be thought proves the existence of that very thing. Any clear? Maybe not. Boiling it down even further, what this proof is doing is arguing from the idea of God, whatever idea of God we can conceive of in our fallen minds to the existence of God. The fact that we can conceive of him means he's there. Here's a direct quote, by the way, from Anselm. You can see here he lived from 1033 to 1109. God is that than which nothing greater can be conceived. That's his argument in a nutshell, the ontological argument. Like the others, this argument has its strengths, but it has its weaknesses as well. First, in terms of weakness, one cannot escape the sense that with this argument, At some sense, man is measuring God by man's thoughts. There's a certain man-centeredness built into this that's always there under the surface. Even this phrase, God is that than which nothing greater can be conceived, is centered around whatever can be conceived by man. Second, it's not logically necessary to say that something than which nothing greater can be conceived is God. God could be something that transcends even what we can conceive. Third, even if a person has an idea of God, he cannot know that that idea is of God unless he first knows what God is like. And how is he to come to know what God is like? Through God's own self-revelation of what he is like, not based on what we think God is like. Fourth, and like many of the other arguments we've gone through already, There have been those who have held to some form of this ontological argument who never came to believe in the God of the Bible. Here we have, left to right, uh, Rene Descartes, Baruch Spinoza, and Georg Hegel, who looks really suspicious. But these men believed in some version of that ontological argument and did not believe in the Christian God, did not believe in the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. All that to say that the ontological argument, like the other three, is not the be-all, end-all natural proof for the existence of God. Now, again, and I've said it before, each of these philosophical arguments, the cosmological, teleological, moral, and ontological, they can be helpful tools in our understanding of the, the doctrine of God. These can be useful tools in our theology proper toolbox, but as we've seen, each has major limitations 
Because ultimately, each one of these does what my own theology professor once said. They build theology from below. That is, each of these arguments derives from human reason, human argumentation, and human thought processes, rather than God's self-revelation in Scripture, which would be building our theology from above. We want to build our theology from above, from Scripture, not like these guys, from below. Herman Bavink, a highly respected Dutch theologian from the early 20th century, once said this. He said, we receive the impression that belief in the existence of God is based entirely upon these proofs. But indeed, that would be a wretched faith, which, before it invokes God, must prove his existence. The contrary, however, is the truth. There is not a single object of existence of which we hesitate to accept until definite proofs are furnished. Of the existence of self, of the world round about us, of logical and moral laws, etc., we are so deeply convinced because of the indelible impressions which all these things make upon our consciousness that we need no arguments or demonstration. Spontaneously, altogether involuntarily, without any constraint or coercion, we accept that existence. What Bavink is saying here is that we accept the material world all around us by sight as being what it actually is. The sky that we see is actually the sky. My arm is actually my arm. If I put one bean here and one bean here and I bring the two beans together, I have two beans. That's reality. We don't need further proofs for these realities. Bavink continues, Now the same is true in regard to the existence of God. The so-called proofs, that's what we've just gone through, may convey greater clearness, but they are by no means the final grounds of our most certain conviction that God exists. This certainly is established only by faith. The proofs taken as real proofs are not sources, but rather products of faith. Which leads us right into our final argument for the existence of God, that the one that will undergird the remainder of our study of theology proper this summer which is the presuppositional argument. The presuppositional argument. That's section E on the first side of your worksheet. By the way, I'm guessing that these are not going to be sufficient for note-taking. Have you filled these pages up already? All right, hope you're writing small. The presuppositional argument. Now, in our first lesson in this series, I laid out the presuppositions which will inform the entirety of our study of theology proper. In fact, nope, they're not on this worksheet. I might need to change that. I'd laid out six presuppositions. We're not going to go through them all right now. I'm going to remind you of the first two of these presuppositions. The first is this. God exists, and God has revealed himself. We went over this in our first session, where we saw that God has revealed himself generally in nature and history and conscience, and he's revealed himself specifically or specially in direct speech to certain men, in dreams and visions, through the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then with utmost clarity through his word, through through scripture. So God exists, and God has revealed himself. He has spoken to us in this generation most clearly through his word. So if we want to understand whether God exists, we need to go with what God himself has revealed in scripture, in his word, about his existence. And in what ways does scripture demonstrate the existence of God? 
again, that time restrains us here, but there are at least a few that we can go through. Here's one way in which the scripture demonstrates the existence of God. Scripture establishes the existence of God based on its lack of argumentation for the existence of God. Unlike the natural proofs, the scriptures don't build the case for God's existence. We don't read the Bible as from A to B to C to D and, oh, now I believe God exists. No, the scripture is not a series of natural or logical proofs to establish that God is there. Rather, scripture simply assumes and implicitly asserts the existence of God. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. Not, here are three reasons why you should believe God exists. No, in the beginning, God. Plain and simple, cut and dried. The same with John 1.1, in the beginning was the word. Just lets you have it. Another esteemed Dutch theologian, Louis Burkhoff, weighed in on this scripture's lack of argumentation argument for the existence of God. Burkhoff says the Christian accepts the truth of the existence of God by faith. But this faith is not a blind faith, but a faith that is based on evidence. And the evidence is found primarily in scripture as the inspired word of God. Scripture proof on this point does not come to us in the form of an explicit declaration, and much less in the form of a logical argument, In that sense, the Bible does not prove the existence of God. It presupposes the existence of God. Now, surely there will be someone here who is thinking and saying internally, hang on a second, I'm throwing a flag. You're engaging, Jesse, in circular reasoning. By arguing for the existence of God, by referring to the God of the Bible, which assumes the very thing you're trying to prove, you're engaging in circular reasoning. Yes, I am. I am engaging in circular reasoning. And the reality is even secular people engage in secular reasoning. Non-believers engage in secular reasoning, I would say, when they obey the law. Why? Because it's illegal to break the law. That's their own way of, in a circular way, acknowledging that the law is there and that they should be obeying that law. I'm doing so, I'm engaging in circular reasoning here without apologizing because the source that I'm drawing from to engage in my circular reasoning, the Bible, is superior to any other form of authority that exists. In other words, this is the best form of circular reasoning anybody could ever engage in, to do so from the standpoint of God, from the standpoint of Scripture. How else does Scripture demonstrate the existence of God? Well, Scripture establishes the existence of God by simply requiring man to believe that God is, which starts with believing that he exists. That's Hebrews 11.6. He who comes to God must believe that he is. The message of Scripture does not equate having a saving relationship with God and being able to engage in human reasoning about whether God exists. Instead, It simply compels us, as this passage does, to believe that he is. Here's another way scripture demonstrates the existence of God. Scripture provides a harsh assessment of those who deny the existence of God. You know some of these, I'm sure. Psalm 14.1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Psalm 10.4, the wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. 
Psalm 53, 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have committed abominable injustice. Did you catch each of the descriptive words that, of rebuke that God has for those who deny his existence? Foolish, wicked, corrupt, abominable. Here's a fourth one. The scriptures assert that God is self-existent. The scriptures testify on their face to the fact not only that God exists, but that he is self-existent, meaning he is the, the source of his own life. He's not the grand designer because we see elements of design in creation. He's not the moral lawgiver because we see elements of morality and, and law around us. No, and he's not God because we are able to conceive of nothing greater, the way that Anselm would say it. No, no, Scripture testifies that God simply is. I am who I am. Exodus 3.14. From him and through him and to him are all things. Romans 11.36. 1 Timothy 1.17. He is the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. In summary, the scriptures, which we know are the word of God, testify that God exists. That means we can affirm through faith and with the spirit living in us that God does, in fact, exist. That's the presuppositional argument in a nutshell. Again, entire courses are taught on each one of these. I'm doing my best to get them each before you to kind of weigh and measure and see which is the best one. So, we have covered so far... The existence of God in about 40 minutes. That sounds irreverent. But we've covered the existence of God in 40 minutes. Now we're going to look at the knowability of God. And then we're going to get into the incomprehensibility of God as we turn the page in our worksheets here. Let's start with the knowability of God. You can, I hope, appreciate sort of the built-in tension between these two concepts. Uh, The Bible reveals that both are true. That God is knowable to mankind and specifically to his true followers, but at the same time, because of his transcendence and independence and his very godness, God is incomprehensible. He is personal, yet he's infinite and absolute. He's knowable, and yet he's incomprehensible. Let's go ahead and start with the knowability of God. The testimony of Scripture is clear. God has personally related to his people through his very presence throughout the scope of history. He had a relationship with Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall. He descended to the people of God at Babel in Genesis 11. He spoke directly with Moses. Exodus 33 says he spoke with Moses as a man speaks to his friend. God gave his law at Sinai. He dwelt between the cherubim and the Old Testament mercy seat from which he communed with his original people. He is present, 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, with the church collectively. He indwells today each individual believer. In James 2.23, he calls us friends. Clearly, God is no aloof or unattainable deity. He is involved in the lives of his people. Further, God's interactions and relationships with his people show that not only is he interactive and relational with his people, but he can be personally known. In fact, that's the clear testimony of Scripture. Here's Jeremiah 9. 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, 
that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Knowing God, as as described here, has something to do with knowing something of his character as he has revealed it to us. Or consider the words of our Lord in John 17, 3. This is eternal life, he says, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Knowing God, then, also is linked to our having been granted eternal life through Christ Jesus. If you are one of God's true followers here tonight, meaning you've bowed the knee to this Jesus in repentance and faith, you can know and have comfort not only in the truth that God knows you as his adopted child, but also in the truth that you can know him, that he is knowable by you in a personal and relational way. Among other things, this means that the Spirit will illumine his word so that you can understand his will. This means you can pray to him. You can cry out to him. You can teach others about him. And it means you can serve him in your family and in, and in his church. I hope we never lose sight of how incredible it is that we, as mere creatures and sinful and wretched ones at that, can know the living God. I hope that's not lost ever on any one of us here. But, and there always has to be a but when we study theology, while God is knowable, at the same time, Scripture teaches that God is incomprehensible. This means that while God has been truly and sufficiently revealed so as to be personally knowable, he has not completely revealed himself so as to be comprehensively and exhaustively knowable. That brings us to the incomprehensibility of God. See, as much as we might try through our study of scripture and theology this summer to to plumb the depths of the person and the being of God, the reality is we'll never get there. We'll never come even close. And why? Because we are time-bound, earth-bound, temporal creatures whose minds have been weakened and polluted and corrupted by indwelling sin. In contrast to our plight as humans, Scripture teaches us that God is spirit. He's invisible. Scripture teaches that God dwells in heaven. Isaiah 66 here. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Scripture teaches that God dwells in unapproachable light. 1 Timothy 6.16 here. He alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. Scripture teaches that God is higher than all... Other so-called gods. Psalm 95.3. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Scripture teaches that God transcends time and space and his creation. Isaiah 55.9. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Scripture teaches that God is infinite. Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. Scripture teaches that God is absolutely unique. Isaiah 46, 5, to whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we would be alike? That's God speaking. Or Psalm 50, 21, this is God again. You thought that I was just like you. Scripture teaches that God does not reveal all that he knows or all that he is. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. And Scripture teaches that God cannot fully be searched out. 
Job 37.5, God thunders with his voice wondrously, doing great things which we cannot comprehend. Or Psalm 145.3, great is the Lord and highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Or last, Romans 11.33, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology has helpfully summarized, I think, God's incomprehensibility when he says this. It is not only that we never fully understand God, it is also true that we can never fully understand any single thing about God. His greatness, his understanding, his knowledge, his riches, wisdom, judgments, and ways are all beyond our ability to understand fully. He continues, Thus we may know something about God's love, power, wisdom, and so forth, but we can never know his love completely or exhaustively. We can never know his power exhaustively. We can never know his wisdom exhaustively, and so forth. In order to know any single thing about God exhaustively, we would need to know it as he himself knows it. And of course, if we ourselves knew what God knew, what would that make us? God. No. The most that we can engage in is what my... Theology professor Dr. Jim Mook at Master Seminary has called blessed despair. That holy frustration that we experience when we attempt to search out and understand any aspect of God's person or God's works. Blessed despair refers to that process whereby we seek to plumb the deep things of God, to study him through his word, to come to a fuller understanding of who he is and his person and character and will. That's the blessed part, the beauty of studying God. But then the despair. The despair comes when we reach the conclusion that because we are mere creaturely beings and fallen ones at that, we'll never come close to a complete understanding and full appreciation of who he is. Blessed despair really is a hallmark of the study of theology. You know, the study of theology can produce headache-inducing thoughts about God and his nature and his person and his character, while at the same time producing soul-stirring affections for the triune God of Scripture. That's okay. We should absolutely lean into that tension and go no further with it. Again, Grudem says, If we delight in the fact that God alone is God, that he is always infinitely greater than we are, and that we are his creatures who owe him worship and adoration, then this will be a very encouraging idea. Even though we spend time in Bible study and fellowship with God every day of our lives, there will always be more to learn about God and his relationships to us and the world, and thus there will always be more that we can be thankful for and for which we can give him praise. Indeed. So when we reach one of these topics like God's knowability and his incomprehensibility, when we reach one of these topics like God's sovereignty and man's responsibility or God's goodness and the existence of evil in the world, let's diligently search the scriptures for answers. But let's always be prepared to end with the humble posture that David had in Psalm 139, verse 6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. Well, I pray our lesson tonight has been an encouragement to you as you worship and serve the God who is, the God, meaning the God who exists, the God who is knowable, and the God who is incomprehensible. Let's pray. Our great God, as we study this subject, we are immediately in awe, in awe of who you are, 
who we are and that we would have the opportunity to, to worship you, have fellowship with you, and, and approach you through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. You truly are holy and righteous. You truly are loving and merciful. You truly are good and gracious and, and so many other things that we call attributes, but they really just comprise who you are. God, I pray that you would help us work through this process of blessed despair as we go through this study this summer. Help us to be diligent to seek you out, to to know you in a more deep and intimate way through your word, but at the same time realize that we'll never reach the ultimate subject of the study. That because of our fallenness, because of the effects of sin, though forgiven, they're still there, we'll never be able to, to get to the end of the, the subject of our study. There'll always be something lacking, something missing, something we wish we could know. But help us to find rest in that and, and hope in that and comfort in that, knowing that you are alone God and worthy of all our worship and praise. We thank you for this day, Lord. We thank you for the privilege, morning and evening, to worship you around the word through song, through fellowship, through prayer. And we ask that our service to you this week would be found faithful and pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen.